Hello and welcome to Hotel Movie Muse, the finest establishment this side of Celluloid Valley. We've got lots of entertainment and amenities to ensure you have a pleasant stay and our friendly staff are at your disposal. I'm Gordon Sinclair, the hotel manager, and I'd like to introduce you to the team. Graham Mason is our most knowledgeable and connected concierge. Good evening. Our bar manager, Matt Corn, whips up the best cocktails since Tom Bruce hung up his shaker. Hello. And our trusty bellboy might not be the brightest button, but his eagerness and enthusiasm more than make up for his many shortcomings. It's Simon Burton. Good evening. Don't forget that you can find movie news, reviews and articles over at moviemuse.net, such as our regular free view movies of the week feature and video top tens, as well as following us on social media by searching for Movie Muse UK. As always, we'll start with our What Have We Been Watching feature. So, Simon, what have you been watching? With the new series of Red Dwarf coming out, because of it, I got back into the old ones again and went through the whole lot right from start to finish for about the 20,000th time in the last couple of years. And yeah, the new series, I know there's been a lot of people saying it's too old and it's come back and it's really good. I didn't find any particularly bad episodes in the whole series. A lot of the scripts were almost back to the early days. They didn't have to go out the ship too much. Obviously, they still do have to have CGI and go out and visit places. But on the whole, it was sort of back to the old style. And some of the writing was really sharp, some good laughs, some good banter and lines again, especially from Rimmer as usual. And I just thought I quite liked each one of the episodes. My favourite one was the very first one, 20 Kill, when they go back and Prohibition is not Prohibition about alcohol, but Prohibition about technology. I liked the premise of that and I thought it was done quite well. And some of the lines, especially in the speakeasy, was very clever and very well done. So yeah, I've been mostly just watching that. I'd agree with you. I've watched that latest series of Red Dwarf twice now, just to make sure I did like it. And I wasn't just being rose tinted and I really enjoyed it and yeah I liked 20 Kirk I don't think it was one of my favourite episodes I think probably Officer Rimmer was the highlight of the series I love the bit where they kind of photocopy a crew member I thought that was really clever and especially when he gets jammed in the machine and uh, half his head's printed out funny I thought that was really good so I was really impressed with the latest series of Red Dwarf I think it better than series 10 and I liked series 10 as well so yeah truly back to form anybody else been watching Red Dwarf? Yeah I wasn't that impressed with the first couple of episodes mainly because they were quite good sci-fi stories but they weren't particularly funny I didn't think I thought only the cat in the first couple of episodes had any really funny lines but it was the third one that actually really impressed me and that was because it was just really silly and kind of going back to that earlier style as Simon mentioned that was the one where Lister had his kidney stolen and then had to go back in time to steal them back from himself or something along those lines and they mistakenly thought this snack robot which I think was called Snacky was a highly intelligent doctor robot but he was actually just a snack dispenser on wheels so I really enjoyed that one overall I do think it did rely a lot on some of the old stories there was little hints of lots of the earlier stories obviously culminating in the polymorph in the final episode but it was definitely better than I was expecting it to be and I pretty much enjoyed most of the episodes even if some of them weren't particularly funny Graham what about you? I haven't seen any of it I was going to give it a miss but on your guys recommendation I'll probably catch up with the series on DVD because it sounds like it's a partial return to form so yeah at some point I'll catch up with it but after being a bit disappointed with the last few series, I've kind of moved on from Red Dwarf. But I'll give this a try, definitely. Good stuff. So what have you been watching then, Graham? Well, first of all, after our uh, movie choice the other month, I watched the remake of Brighton Rock, which actually isn't a remake, as the cover goes to pains to point out. It's actually just another version of the novel by Graham Greene. This was made in 2010 and stars Sam Riley, Andrea Riseborough, Helen Mirren, John Hurt. So it's got a pretty decent cast to it. To start off with, 
I was reasonably impressed with this. It generally follows the same lines as the 1947 original, and the acting, as you would expect with the names involved, is pretty decent as well. But it just goes on far too long. The plot, even in the original, is gossamer thin, and it stretches out to over two hours. There's just far too many scenes that are long-winded and don't really belong in it. It's reset into the 60s rather than post-war and changes a few characters. But as a whole, I don't think it's really any patch on the original film. And I would only give this two out of five. I've seen the remake of Brian Rock. I quite liked the theming of it into the 60s, Mods vs. Rockers era. But yeah, you're spot on about how it drags on. The original, like you say, it's got a very thin script. So even that drags on a little bit. And that's about half an hour shorter than the remake. And I don't see any reason why they needed to do that, which is disappointing because other than that, I would have rated it quite highly. Yeah, and I do have an admission to make as well. I bought this DVD initially instead of the film we were supposed to have for the film club. So when it turned up and I unwrapped it and saw that it had Helen Mirren on it, I thought to myself, I'm sure she wasn't around acting back then. And then I realised I bought this one instead of the original version. The other notable film I watched recently was Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is the 2014 sequel to Rise of the Planet of the Apes, as we mentioned on an earlier podcast. Surely Dawn should have come first and then Rise, but they've done it the other way around. So we've got Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which continues the story of an infection that spread since the first film throughout the world. And in the meantime, in woods in San Francisco, this band of apes under the leadership of Caesar are living quite peacefully until their peaceful existence is disturbed, of course, by humans. And there's then a standoff and the beginning of what would appear to be a war in the next film. This series continues to impress me. When it was first announced, Rise of the Planet Apes, I thought, really? Does this need to be remade? But actually, a lot of the early Apes films are not great apart from the original, so I suppose it was a chance to improve upon the earlier films. There's nothing amazing to it plot-wise. It's a very efficient and effective thriller that kind of overcomes the innate silliness of the premise, and thanks to some excellent acting and also special effects in it, I think it really pulls it off quite well, and although it's quite predictable what happens throughout it, I've found myself thoroughly enjoying it, and I've also always had a bit of a soft spot for sort of post-apocalyptic movies, so I really enjoyed this, and I'm looking forward to the next episode in this franchise, and I would score it four out of five. I've not seen any of the Planet Apes, even the old films, for so long. I actually should revisit them, to be honest. You definitely should revisit Dawn and Rise, because I think both of them are excellent films, and I'm really looking forward to the new one. Yeah, me too. I enjoy both those, and I think the next one's out next year, is it? Yeah, I think sure. they've just released a teaser poster, so okay. we're probably a long way off if all they're doing is releasing a poster that isn't even going to be the final poster. Yeah. So I reckon it'll probably be the back end of next year, but definitely looking forward to that. The first film that I watched was called In a Valley of Violence, and this is a 2016 Western starring Ethan Hawke as your typical ex-military man trying to escape his past, but he passes through the wrong town where he crosses Marshal John Travolta and his band of not-so-merry men, who include a strange performance from what I can only call a Gary Neville lookalike as the Marshal's son. But the film is half great, and it's got some fantastic performances, especially Ethan Hawke as the loner who just wants to be left alone. And the film could almost have been a really good Wild West version of First Blood, but it somehow gets caught between drama and comedy with a few really silly set pieces with a trained dog that would look more at home on Britain's Got Talent than in a Hollywood movie. And it's a real shame because they get the humour just right in the script. And had they not included these really stupid parlour tricks that lower the tone, the film would have been much better overall and I'd probably have given it a half or a full point more. But as it stands, in a value of violence, it's still a very 
really good modern western and I'd give it three out of five. And then the other thing, Matt and myself took a trip to the Big Smoke to see cinema in a new way. Aliens Live, which is part of a season of classic films being shown on the big screen at the Royal Albert Hall, with the score being performed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Other films that have had the orchestra treatment are Red of the Lost Ark, Jurassic Park, and I think E.T. and Harry Potter are still to come. Royal Albert Hall's a great venue for this kind of thing with its beautiful circular hall that virtually guarantees a good view wherever you sat. And we were pretty high up and to the right of centre, but had no problems other than a little bit of vertigo when we first went in there. And the screen must have been 20 metres wide at least and was mounted above the orchestra's pit, which means you could see the players furiously banging out tunes in absolute unison with the film. Whilst the score for Aliens isn't the most memorable when compared to some of John Williams' scores like Star Wars, seeing the film in this way was a superb way to celebrate its 30th birthday and the live orchestra certainly helped to make the dramatic ending scenes even more spectacular than they already were. The only issue that I had with the screening was that they had subtitles on the whole way through and that just seems really odd because why would a harder hearing person pay four times the price of a normal screening to have a live orchestra play music that they couldn't hear anyway? So I just didn't really get what that was for and it definitely detracted from some of the enjoyment when you're reading what's going to happen before it actually unfolds on screen. But apart from that, I thought it was absolutely excellent and I'd definitely like to go and see a couple more of the films that they do. The only thing that's probably going to stop me from doing that is the cost because like I say four times more than a normal visit to the cinema plus having to get all the way down to London is probably going to prohibit that. I totally agree with what you said about the subtitles and what I also thought was even more frustrating about them was because of the size of the screen they were about a foot high you could probably read them at half that size it was a little bit distracting to see the lines being written on the screen just before someone was saying them but otherwise I pretty much agree with what you were saying I think there's a couple of things I noticed that I was really impressed by. The first thing was during the earlier scenes of the film where they've just landed on the planet and the two groups of marines are heading out into the complex to investigate. There's not a lot of background noise, but there's a noise that keeps repeating itself. I can only describe it as a plinking sort of noise that goes like ding, 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 like that. And I was quite surprised to find that wasn't a sound effect and is actually created by the string section, notably the cellists, I think, tapping the strings of the cellists with the bows so probably not what they were thinking about doing when they embarked on a career playing the cello but it was a very interesting sound that they created and not something you necessarily associate with an orchestra so that was interesting and also just to watch them generally the conductor had his own little screen with the film showing on it had little sort of green blobs that would pop up now and then which were obviously the cues for the orchestra to start so they really had got the technology syncing perfectly with the orchestra to make sure that they played the tunes at exactly the right spot so it was really cleverly done I thought and the setting was superb. I mean, if you're going to go to the Royal Albert Hall and see the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, why not go and see a great film at the same time? Aliens is a five-star film anyway for me, so it's five stars plus, really. The subtitle thing is pretty bizarre. I'm glad I didn't walk out for it, because I think that probably would have ruined it for me. I can only think that perhaps with the acoustics of the Royal Albert Hall, with the orchestra playing, they thought that maybe people wouldn't be able to hear the dialogue properly or something, but neither of you have mentioned that as an issue, so I find that a bit strange. I think the acoustics were great in there for the orchestra, and it was absolutely amazing. You can understand why there are big concerts held in that venue. And you didn't have a problem hearing any of the dialogue, but there was quite a bit of vibration with louder dialogue or some of the explosions on screen that weren't part of the score so it wasn't perfect but it was still definitely a really unique way to see the film and as Matt said it's a fantastic film anyway and to see it like that actually even with those subtitles I think it elevated it a little bit as well so yeah I mean as a one-off brilliant okay Matt do you want to tell us what else you've been watching then 
Well, continuing the theme of going to see movie-related things in a live environment, as you know, Gordon, the week before we went to see Aliens, we went to see John Carpenter live in Manchester. The gig took place at the Victoria Warehouse in Manchester on the 29th of October, so perfect timing for the man responsible for the Halloween theme. The venue is basically a former warehouse, as you might imagine by the name, that's been repurposed into an event space, and it had a very bleak sort of dystopian look, which was kind of perfect for this gig, but there were a few issues with the venue as well that I'll come to in a minute. So John Carpenter performed with a full band, including his son and his son-in-law, playing a mixture of his classic movie themes and material from his recently released Lost Themes albums. And the highlights were obviously the stuff from the films, particularly the opening one-two punch of the themes from Escape from New York and Assault on Precinct 13. There's also a creepy theme from The Fog, which was accompanied by lots of dry ice and green lighting. And of course, a Halloween theme, which was given extra menace, I thought, with the addition of live guitars. Each movie movie theme was accompanied by clips from the film on a big screen behind the band so we got to see the best of all the aforementioned films plus The Thing, They Live, Big Trouble in Little China and Christine amongst others and they also played about half a dozen tracks I think from these Lost Themes albums which are decent enough tunes but probably a few too many for that environment because I think most people would have been going there to see and hear the movie themes being performed. The other criticisms are really about the venue as I mentioned it was massively oversold this gig there's been a lot of complaints online about it lots of people weren't able able to see the stage or even get into the main hall where the stage was luckily we got in there soon enough to see things reasonably well and it also wasn't made clear in advance that it was a standing only gig so we'd got there just after the doors opened so we could get a good seat only to find that there weren't any so then had to stand around for two hours before the gig started and it only lasted just over an hour anyway so that was a little bit disappointing as i said there's been a lot of complaints about the venue and the organizer but in the end it was probably a once in a lifetime chance to see the director and composer of some of my favorite films so it wasn't perfect but it was very enjoyable so I'm going to give it four stars and I'd echo virtually everything you've said there I think the venue aesthetically was absolutely perfect I think even acoustically it was pretty good for us where we were although there are a lot of people online who've said if you were towards the back or out of the main hall you couldn't hear a thing so I think possibly where we were was quite lucky but just to get the chance to see John Carpenter and have him talk to us and play songs was a fantastic experience so as that one-off experience again it was brilliant and i'd probably agree with a four-star rating for it but i'd also definitely say there was far too much from his lost themes i know he's got an album to sell but we were there for the movie themes and the fact that for most of his lost themes tracks that he played there was nothing on the screen so you go from watching a movie theme that you know from a film that you love with clips being played in the background to blank and a strange song that you've never heard of it just seemed too much of a shift i think he could well do with tweaking it as he continues his tour but still I really loved it and uh, wouldn't expect to ever see that again so as a one-off experience fantastic and continuing with the Halloween-y sort of theme the film I watched around Halloween this year I always try and pick a horror film and usually try and pick something new the film I watched was called Trick or Treat that's Trick or Treat not to be confused with Trick or Treat which was the 1980s horror film that featured Ozzy Osbourne this is a film made in 2007 which was then delayed and finally released in 2009 I think straight to DVD it's directed by a guy called Michael Doherty who co-wrote the scripts for the X-Men 2 and Superman Returns both of which of course were directed by Brian Singer who's the producer of this film and it also stars Anna Packin and Brian Cox who both featured in X-Men 2 so there's a bit of a reunion of people involved in that film and it's an 
anthology film featuring four shorter stories that all take place on Halloween night and are woven together. The stories are based around the traditions of Halloween. So, for example, there's one about trick-or-treating, one about an urban legend that turns out to be true, one about a Halloween party that's a little bit more than it first appears to be, and all the stories feature an appearance by a mysterious character called Sam who appears to be a small boy with a sackcloth mask. He looks a bit like a more sinister version of Sackboy from the Little Big Planet games, actually. And it's a fun mix of horror tales with a short running time of about 80 minutes. He's got a few scares, some occasional gore, and if you enjoy films like Creepshow, which we talked about a little bit last time around, then this is a decent modern-day equivalent and a perfect film for Halloween night next year. Doherty himself has gone on to direct last year's Christmas horror film Krampus, and is also tipped to helm Godzilla 2, and the sequel to this trick-or-treat is in production at the moment, so I'm going to give that three and a half stars. I'm a really big fan of portmanteau movies, such as Creepshow and this, so I'll definitely need to check that one out. Sounds like my cup of tea. Okay, moving on then to our coming soon feature, and this one is a special coming soon feature. So, Matt, do you want to tell us about this? Yeah, well, we had a bit of a chat, as we always do, about what we're looking forward to. And we all agreed pretty much that the thing we're most looking forward to over the next few weeks is the release of Rogue One, which is the first Star Wars anthology film, taking things a little bit away from the normal Star Wars saga. So this is released on the 15th of December in the UK and the 16th of December worldwide, I think. And it takes place, as most people I'm sure know, just before Star Wars A New Hope and tells the story of a small group of rebels led by Jin Erso, played by Felicity Jones, that is tasked with obtaining the plans for the Empire's new secret weapon, which we all know is the Death Star, obviously. And it also stars Diego Luna, Ben Mendelsohn, Mads Mikkelsen, Donnie Yen and Forrest Whitaker, most of whom are part of this rebel group. And I guess we should look at the trailer and then we'll have a little bit of a chat about it. Jim, whatever I do, I do it to protect you. So you understand? I understand. You want to get out of here? Our rebellion is all that remains to push back the Empire. I think he might be able to help us. When was the last time you were in contact with your father? What is this? It appears he is critical to the development of a super weapon. If my father built this thing, we need to find him. All right. How many do I need? They are requesting a call sign. It's, um, Rogue. Rogue One. That we are dealing with here is immeasurable. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? We have hope. Rebellions are built on hope. They've no idea we're coming. Take hold of this moment. The force is strong. Make ten men feel like a hundred. We'll take the next chance. And the next. You're rebels, aren't you? Save the rebellion! Save the dream! 
Well, I enjoyed that. And if I'm honest, I'm probably more excited for Rogue One than I was for The Force Awakened based on the trailers for both. And as I've said previously, I like films that have a grounding in reality. And this one seems to have a lot of Earth-like locations and characters with much less out in the depths of space. So that really looks good to me. As for the new characters, I quite like Jin, but I do think she comes across a little too refined to be such a rebel. But they obviously needed to make her distinctly different from Rey in The Force Awakens to avoid the comparisons, so I can understand why they've gone for a character like that. The character I liked the most in the trailers is Forrest Whitaker's. I don't know what the character's called, but I enjoy his performances in most films. And in this one, he looks great as the war veteran that looks like he's had his foot or leg blown off and he's got a big metal foot on there. Forrest Whitaker's character is called Saw Guerrera, and he's a veteran of the Clone Wars. I'm reading this off Wikipedia. And apparently he previously appeared in the animated series Star Wars The Clone Wars. So there's a younger version of him in that animated series if you wanted to find out more about him. Awesome. The one thing I'm not really keen on is the new robot who seems to be strange mix of the Iron Giant and Alfred from Batman. So I don't think 3PO has got too much to worry about. I think the Darth Vader stuff is all a bit unnecessary. It's probably there just to excite kids and merchandise sellers. But overall, I think Rogue One looks more like a war movie than any other Star Wars film. And that makes me very, very optimistic. So, yeah, I'm really excited for this. I agree with you, Gordon. I mean, there's been some backlash, as you expect with these things. There's always haters gonna hate, isn't there? But the fact that the trailers look so serious and the fact it just basically looks like a Star Wars war movie, it really, really excites me. There's been criticism of some of the dialogue, especially that Jen Erso says. And yeah, she is a bit posh totty, really, for the role. I don't think perhaps she's the ideal choice, but you can see why they've gone with it. And I think she's gonna do a reasonable job of it at the end of the day. I don't think it's really gonna detract from the film too much. And the lines they say in it I just think it's standard war stuff all clipped together for the trailer to look all nice I think it looks a good blend of action and drama and intrigue the fact there's no Jedi in it is fairly logical I believe and I also like the way there's no real standout stars in it it looks like it's just going to be a good ensemble film concentrating on the plot and everything and yeah I'm really excited for this too and of course it looks like it's got AT-ATs and ATSTs in it so what's not to get excited about very much looking forward to this yeah I think I said last year when we did our Star Wars podcast that I was looking forward to this possibly more than Force Awakens. I think that anticipation has been dulled a little bit by seeing the trailers, not because I think they're bad, just because it's given me more of an idea of what the plot's going to be. And what I do like about this is there can't really be any spoilers, because you don't know who any of the characters are, and you know that basically pretty much all of them are probably going to die at the end of it, because they're trying to retrieve the Death Star plans. It's pretty much a suicide mission, and you know that they retrieve the Death Star plans, so the fact that no spoilers can be given away, I think, is actually quite a nice thing the new characters look mostly good i like the look of donnie yen's character who's obviously got an appreciation for the force but doesn't actually use it as far as i can tell so he looks like a quite interesting character and you should see some good kind of kung fu action from him there's obviously some new worlds in there i'm not entirely convinced by the sort of tropical paradise world which seems a bit of an odd place to have a star wars battle but i guess we'll see how it turns out and i like the fact that it's a story set apart from the skywalker saga again it's got that gritty sort of war movie look i'm a little bit concerned about the rumours of the reshoots that were done to lighten the tone. I don't know if they've been fully debunked as just being normal reshoots and the normal thing that films go through. And the 
director's past history is a little bit ropey. I liked Monsters that he did. That was his first film, but Godzilla was pretty terrible. So that's a little bit of a concern. And the other thing that I'm a bit knocked about is the unnecessary addition of new vehicles that weren't in the original trilogy, which is obviously just a blatant reason for selling new toys. You know, they've got this U-Wing fighter. Well, if it's so good, why wasn't it used in the battle against the Death Star? Unless, of course, they all get destroyed in this film, I suppose. So, yeah, there's a few concerns, but overall, I'm quite excited about it. I actually really like the idea of the tropical kind of paradise island or planet and stormtroopers turning up and kicking sand in the rich people's faces. I really liked the shots that they show of that and think it could be really iconic scenes for the Star Wars franchise. So I was really keen on that. One thing that you called out that you think looks great is an area of concern for me is Donnie Yen's character and it felt like they were just throwing Kung Fu in for Kung Fu's sake. I'm not sure that the martial arts were needed in what looks like a war film. I'm not convinced by it yet and I'm hoping that that character is better than the trailers showed. But just talking about the reshoots, there's been a new trailer since those reshoots and there's certainly no lighter tone in the trailers I don't think. So I hope that that does debunk it. I think it was debunked has just been standard practice. People just like to try and start controversy on the internet, really, don't they? I've not seen the trailers till today because I haven't really been keeping up with it. After the Force Awakens, I was sort of mixed for me. But this looks really good. I was very impressed with the trailers. The action looks good. The locations, I think, are good. I think the characters are going to be good. As you say, no one any real stars in there. So I think they're going to just add to it that the gritty feel of the film. I think though, they definitely should have Vader in there, whether it sells things or not. It's part of it. He's in that era. That's his time. Obviously, he had a lot of influence in the later films, but he was there when they were building the Death Star. So I think that he has to be in there. So I don't think that's a bad thing. I'd be actually disappointed if he wasn't. I think it's going to be a slight surprise because it's on the timeline, but isn't part of the main saga. So it's a very important thing that they got, the plans, and it's just nice that we can have this film actually show you how they did it. And I'm, I'm thinking it's an excellent addition to the Star Wars franchise in the universe. So very looking forward to it. One thing that's not been confirmed yet about it is whether it's going to have a crawl at the beginning of it. What are your feelings? Do you think it should or it shouldn't? Oh, I didn't realise that that was even a debate. But I'm going to vote for no crawl. I think it needs to differentiate itself from the main saga and and I think no crawl would be the way to go. I agree. Those crawls, they generally explain a lot of what's going on beforehand and they have a sort of like grandiose sweep, which with a story like this, a smaller story, I don't think is really necessary and wouldn't perhaps sit right, so no crawl. Yeah, I tend to agree. If it was there, I wouldn't mind, but if it's not there, I don't mind either. I think you know, the crawls tend to crawl a bit, don't they? So, but no, you differentiate it from the main films. It's, it's a side mission, it's different. It's going down a different line at the time, so definitely no crawl. And I totally agree as well. I think it's better off without a crawl. You know, it's not got a John Williams soundtrack either, which is a first for a Star Wars film. So let's make it different. That's quite disappointing about John Williams. I would have kept that in there, but oh well. And that's another thing I'm actually quite pleased about, and not because I've got anything against John Williams, because I love his Star Wars stuff, apart from some of Force Awakens. But I think that's really good, again, that they're just going down a different road with this. And the more different they can be without shitting on its legacy, the happier I'll be. It's almost 12 months to the day since three film fans and a willing apprentice gathered in a virtual projection room to chew the fat about life, the universe and movies. Over the course of 10 episodes, we've given the official word on who was the best Bond, who'd win in a superstar serial killer fight to the death, Marvel or DC, what went wrong with the Star Wars prequels and who's the greatest action hero of all time. So for the first show in our second season, we've decided to change things up a little bit. 
We'll still have regular sections such as film clubs, soundtrack and classic scene, but we decided to combine some of these elements into new themed sections and also include new segments that cover TV and video games. This month's theme focuses on movies, TV, games and music about, setting or involving hotels, motels, guest houses or bed and breakfasts. If they charge daily for the room, then it's fair game for discussion. Hotels and guest houses have played an important role in movies for almost as long as the art form has been around. Almost 100 years ago, Hobart Henley directed May Marsh in the film All Woman, where a character inherits a ramshackle old hotel and must turn the business around with hilarious consequences. Even in the early days, the scope for drama was evident, and in 1918 we saw the release of the first of three films based on the same play by Laros Biro, Hotel Imperial, where a young woman poses as a chambermaid on the Russian-Austrian border in order to avenge the death of her sister. And whether it's our fear of being isolated, of being surrounded by strangers or ghosts within the walls, Hotels have always offered filmmakers a shortcut to suspense, and in 1960, when Janet Leigh checked into the Bates Motel in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the world was introduced to one of the most chilling killers and the most iconic movie locations. But as much as hotels are ripe for the darker side of films, it's just as perfect a setting for comedy. And the 80s and 90s were chock-a-block of hapless bellboys, such as in Blame It on the Bellboy, starring Dudley Moore, scheming concierges, such as The Concierge, starring Michael J. Fox, and clueless guests, or even pigs, like Babe, Pig in the City. But probably the biggest hotel comedy film of that era was The Return of Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone 2. More recently, directors have gone far more surreal, with the likes of The Lobster taking an absurdist approach to love and the afterlife in the Irish countryside, and Wes Anderson's Oscar success with a film based entirely on the fortunes of the fictitious Grand Budapest Hotel. For our look at movie hotels, we'll look at a film, TV show and movie soundtrack that stand out for us as some of the best loved movie locations. So first up is the film club and for this month's film club I got to choose the film and it was Key Largo, a 1948 film noir directed by John Huston and starring Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson and Lauren Bacall. The supporting cast was particularly strong also, with Lionel Barrymore excelling in his typecast role as the curmudgeonly but good-hearted old man, and Claire Trevor, who won the 1948 Best Actress Oscar for her portrayal of Gay Dawn, a former singer-turned-old-lush gangster's mall. The film's an adaptation of the Maxwell Anderson play about a war-weary World War II vet who inadvertently finds himself toe-to-toe with a notorious mobster who's holding the occupants hostage at the Largo Hotel in the Florida Keys during a hurricane. And I loved this film. The acting was top-notch all around, really, with Edward G. Robinson cutting a pretty malevolent figure as the sadistic Johnny Rocco. And you could feel the fractured chemistry between Bogart and Bacall in what was to be their last film together. The styling of the film was first class, with the use of shadows and candlelight to create a great atmosphere as the hurricane moved in. But my favourite thing about Key Largo is the great sense of tension and how believably the characters behave while under threat. I'm a big fan of single or minimal location films and can easily see how great this would have been in the theatre. And I'm going to give Key Largo four stars. So let's see what Matthew thinks of this. Well, after me not being very impressed with Brighton Rock last episode, you might think that I wasn't going to enjoy this one too much either, as it's from a very similar era, I think just a year later. But I enjoyed it a lot more than Brighton Rock, and I thought it particularly showed how much more mature filmmaking seemed to be in the USA compared to the UK at that time. A lot of what I'm going to say now is sort of comparing it to Brighton Rock, because that's the best thing I can compare it to from that era. So the actors, I thought, had a good screen presence, didn't sound overly theatrical, 
despite it being a very talky film once again, although there was a bit more action in it, I thought, than Brighton Rock, I think Humphrey Bogart, he's not the most handsome or glamorous looking guy, and he doesn't really do a lot, but there's just something about him. He's got really good screen presence, even though a lot of the time he's just standing there looking vaguely concerned or whatever. It's got defined heroes and villains in it, this film, which gave you somebody to root for, which again, compared to Brighton Rock, everyone in that was pretty much an asshole, so didn't want to root for anyone in that. There's a good build-up of tension, like you said. You knew something was going to happen at the end of the film, but you were not entirely sure what until the last act of the film. Also got excellent music, I thought, to build up the tension. The one thing I couldn't really understand was why Claire Trevor won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her performance, because I actually thought she was one of the worst in the film. But I guess acting was rated a little bit differently back then than it is now as well, so that's something to consider. But Lauren Bacall, I thought, was really good, and a stark contrast to the lead actress in Brighton Rock, showing that even then female characters could be strong and independent, rather than wishy-washy like the lady in Brighton Rock was. The best scene for me was where Rocco gives Frank the gun and tries to tempt him to shoot him, but Frank declines and then the cop grabs the gun and tries to kill Rocco only to find that it's not loaded. I think Frank, which is Humphrey Bogart's character, knew exactly what was going on there. I'll probably never watch it again, but I did enjoy it and it deserves classic status and I think holds up far better than I was expecting. And I'm going to give the film three and a half stars. Thank you. Simon? Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. As you say, Humphrey Bogart, it's funny, he's obviously a well-renowned actor, but as you say, Matt, he just stood around. But you could see under it all, he's thinking how I'm going to sort this out. And he obviously eventually does. But you can just see he's going along with it. He's just taking his time. He's not going to go straight in. He makes a couple of risky decisions where he could have really got shot early in the film, but then would have been uh, negated the whole point of it. Then Rocco came down and I first saw him, I thought, you know, that guy, he just looked and acted so great as a gangster of that kind of period. I'd give him a with him. He was just so good as a gangster. He just so fitted that kind of character that he needed to be. I was very impressed with it. By the end of it, he just wanted Humphrey, come on, you've got to sort this out. How are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? And the tension was there. You didn't know what mode was going to play out. I didn't expect it to go off on the boat, to be honest. I thought you would have sorted that before we got onto that point. But once you did, it was very interesting. So it hit my interest right to the end of the film. I don't agree, Mark. I thought Claire Trevor was quite good in the way she played the character. She played the, the drunk gangster's mole. She played that well. I actually went the other way around. I didn't think Robin was particularly great in it. I thought she was all right. Didn't do a lot apart from being upset a couple of times and just staring at Humphrey Bogart a few times. Lionel Barrymore was again as the old guy and didn't stood up to Rocco. I thought he could have probably got shot a lot earlier than Rocco was a bit more ruthless to be honest but I didn't even obviously want to avoid bloodshed as much as he could by the sound of it because it would have caused him more trouble than it's worth. Yeah I thought it was overall a really good film, very tense to the end and Rocco really made it for me, he just played it so well. So I'll give it three and a half stars out of five. Okay thank you. I will agree with you Simon that I thought Claire Trevor was really good. She's not just a drunk because it tells you why she's become a drunk and how Rocco has done that to her and that she could have been a star and then he came into her life and now she's just this fractured soul that's only got the drink in her life but she can't bear to let him go which is really good at the end where she actually does turn on him and takes the gun off him. You actually believe that she really is begging for him to take her back and it turns out she isn't, she's double crossing him but I thought that was really good and I thought she was great. Lionel Barrymore I thought was excellent and it's funny that in that period of his career he was typecast as this old man who's a little bit grumpy but he's always a kind-hearted man and I liked the way there was a lot about how he was protecting the Indians and how we've done all this to the Indians and we need to look after them and I thought that was great because I didn't think you'd be seeing that in films in the 40s but then later in his career it kind of turned on its head and all the films he got was the nasty old man like Potter in It's a Wonderful Life so yeah I thought fantastic acting 
the point you made about the inclusion of the Native Americans, yeah, that was probably quite a bold thing to do back in the sort of mid 40s. I don't imagine there was a lot of films that were dealing with those issues back then, so it's not a major part of the story, but an interesting subplot. Yep. Graham, what did you think? Well, firstly, on the Claire Trevor debate, I kind of agree with the two different views. I think that her character is very interesting, but with regards to winning the Oscar, I just think that she overacts an awful lot in many scenes. So I would kind of side with Matt a little bit and think that that wasn't really justified. Although her character has a very interesting arc, I think she's probably got the most interesting background and story to all the characters in the film. With regards to the film overall, I'm a big fan of Humphrey Bogart and films of this era in general. Casablanca is in my top 10 films of all time and while I enjoyed Key Largo for its slow burn feel I felt Humphrey Bogart's character was a little bit too reluctant to get involved in anything for my liking although I understand from his background a lot of this was because of his experiences in the war the chemistry between him and Bacall I just didn't think was really there I was quite disappointed in her really I just think she was a bit of a non-entity in the film but the overall tension in the film as it sort of like boils towards its conclusion I really enjoyed and I think it is an excellent example of Humphrey Bogart's career and the sort of tension that these sort of films could generate back in the day by having just one set because basically the film was set just in the hotel with a few scenes outside. The real problem I did have with the movie overall is the fact that Edward G. Robinson just dominates it for me and that's not such a bad thing I suppose really because he's a great actor and he does a great job but I just felt that his character kind of overwhelmed everyone else in the movie including poor old Hump on a lot of occasions so yeah overall enjoyed it a lot it's a great example of film noir of the period and I would also give it three and a half out of five. Okay, well that gives us a total score of 3.6. So that puts Key Largo in joint third on the leaderboard with Jackie Chan's Project A. Interesting company. (laughs) Thanks very much. That's our film club. We'll be choosing the theme for next time later in the show. So the film club will be announced at the end of this episode. We'll move on now to the original soundtrack. And this time, rather than just having one of us pick a song from a particular soundtrack that they like and playing that out over the end, we thought we'd have a bit of a discussion of the chosen soundtrack as a whole. So, Simon, you got to pick the soundtrack this time. So do you want to tell us which one it is and why you chose it? Okay, I thought a lot about the films of hotels and there's one that just sort of came to me. It's a film I really enjoy and I've watched it quite a few times. And I thought part of the main part of the film is the hotel and sticks in your mind as a bit of music that plays every time this film starts every day. I thought, well, that's interesting. And it's in a hotel. So I've chose the soundtrack of the 1993 fantasy comedy Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray and Andy McDowell. Bill Murray plays Phil Connors. He's an arrogant TV weatherman who gets assigned to covering the annual Groundhog Day event in Punxsutawney in Pennsylvania. He finds himself in a time loop that repeats every day again and again when he wakes up. And the thing that always stands out for me is every morning he wakes up, it's got the song I Got You Babe by Sonny and Sher on the radio. I'm not particularly into Sonny and Sher, I actually can't stand Sher in the later years, but that always reminds me of Groundhog Day, him waking up, living the same day, trying to do different things and just enjoying himself. On the soundtrack, there's quite a lot of instrumental music, which is obviously part of the film, like most of the soundtracks will have. But there's a few other tracks in there that I like. But for me, it's mostly about Sonny and Sher. It's mostly about just you hear that over and over again as he wakes up. And because it's in a hotel, and you have stories about him trying to get out of this loop and trying to get away from here. And I just really like the film. So I thought that track particularly is very apt. So I don't know what you guys thought when you went through it. Did you pick anything out that was particularly good? Well, I think that Sonny and Cher track, it was a really good choice because the way the song starts is nice and slow and soft. It could have been any song, really. 
the fact that it's repeated every day is the key thing that just gets it stuck in people's heads. But I think they did make a particularly good choice for the kind of location where it's set. And it is supposed to be a love story. So, you know, to have a love song on the soundtrack's a good choice. So I do think that that's a really good inclusion on the soundtrack. And like you, it's probably not a song that I would choose to listen to. But on that soundtrack, I think it's great. But we've all picked songs on the soundtrack that we think are pretty good. So, Graham, do you want to tell us about what you've chosen? I haven't chosen a particular song in general because I just wanted to say that I really enjoy the score to Groundhog Day and I didn't actually know who it was by until I listened to it the other day again and the composer called George Fenton. He actually was Oscar nominated for his first feature film work which was Gandhi. He did the score along with Ravi Shankar and if you look at his pedigree throughout his career it's quite amazing really. He's done a lot of TV work here in the UK but he scored more films of Ken Loach than anybody else. Dozens of his films and a lot of other great films as well so I'm really impressed by the score in Groundhog Day it's obviously fairly light-hearted in places but it's also quite understated as well so I would just pick the score in general rather than any particular song I didn't realise he'd done the Ken Lodge film so that's quite interesting yeah, he also did Memphis Belle, which was a World War II drama. Multiplicity, which was another comedy starring Michael Keaton. You've got Mail and Clockwise, I think. I mean, he's had a very long career and done a lot of impressive work over the years, I must say, especially, as I say, with Ken Loach. Great. I will check out some of his work. I've chosen a song by Ray Charles, You Don't Know Me, and it's the song that's played in the scene where Phil and Rita are dancing on the bandstand while the snow falls, and it's quite a charming scene. And they have this song playing the Ray Charles version. Now, unfortunately, actually on the soundtrack, all you get is an instrumental version, which is guitars by Otmar Liebert, apparently. And that is included in the film, but more as incidental music. And I think it's a shame that they didn't include Ray Charles's proper version of the song, because I think it's got a really good like strings riff that keeps repeating throughout the song. And Ray Charles has got a fantastic voice anyway, but it just fits the film so well. The lyrics explain how Phil's feeling and I just think it's a real shame that probably for licensing reasons they couldn't get that on the soundtrack. But yeah, that's definitely the standout track for me. What about you, Matt? Well, generally I wasn't a big fan of this soundtrack. It's got a few classic songs from sort of 50s and 60s era, I suppose. The score I found, I'm not really a big fan of jazz, and it was a bit of a jazz score and really didn't do anything for me. There are a few interesting moments in the score. There's a track later on that's a slow sort of piano number, and then the following track is kind of a more frantic version of it, which I thought was quite good. I guess it was used for one of the scenes where things are going a bit chaotic. I don't remember where the music fitted into the film that well. But overall, I wasn't that impressed by the soundtrack album. But the standout track for me... If I had to pick a favourite, it would be the opening track on the CD, which is Weatherman by Delbert McClinton, which was actually used on the end credits of the film. And it's probably the most upbeat and fun song on the soundtrack and was actually co-written by the late Harold Ramis, who directed the film as well. OK, thank you. So that's the soundtrack to Groundhog Day. All that's left is for us to score the score. So, Graham, what would you give Groundhog Day? Three out of five. OK, Simon? Three and a half. Matt? I'm going to go for two out of five. And I'm going to give it three out of five. So that gives the Groundhog Day soundtrack a score of 2.9. And we'll start tracking the scores of these soundtracks for this season. So as it stands, Groundhog Day is our favourite soundtrack of the season. And our least favourite. Of course. 
Moving on then, we'll go now to the small screen. So we haven't really talked about TV in any great detail in previous shows. So what we thought is we'll bring a section in where we talk about the small screen. And Graham, it was up to you to pick a TV show that's got some connection to our theme of hotels. So what have you gone for? I've chosen Boardwalk Empire, which is a TV series that started in 2010. It stars Steve Buscemi as Enoch Nucky Thompson, the corrupt treasurer of Atlantic City. It begins at the start of the Prohibition era and charts the rise of various gangsters, both real and fictional, while Bushimi's character based loosely on the real-life Enoch L. Johnson, who was also treasurer of Atlantic City between the years of 1911 and 1939. The series also stars Michael Pitt, Michael Shannon, Kelly McDonald, Gretchen Mull and Stephen Graham, the latter starring as a rather short-fused Al Capone. And it won countless awards, including a Golden Globe for Steve Bushimi in 2000. 11 and several Emmy Awards. It's a very high quality series. There have been five series in total, which brings complete arc to the story of Lucky Thompson. The hotel theme is carried on for Boardwalk Empire in as far as Nucky Thompson resides in the entire eighth floor of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Atlantic City, which is based on another hotel, actually, the Marlborough Blenheim Hotel. And obviously a lot of the series takes place in this hotel and in other hotels as well. I've seen all five series of this. It's a fascinating, violent and compelling look at a rather turbulent period in American history. I'm not sure that it should really be taken seriously as a historical piece as I said there's a lot of fictional characters but they are interwoven quite nicely with real characters of the era and my favourite character out of it is not Steve Ushimi's character but actually Michael Shannon's FBI cop who was initially on the trail of him and then falls somewhat by the wayside as the series proceeds I think that's a great character and I really enjoyed his scenes a lot more than most of the other characters but there's a lot of other interweaving threads throughout the series as well we've all watched the first episode season one and that's my programme for Hotel theme. okay Thanks. I'm a huge fan of Boardwalk Empire. I haven't seen all five series like yourself. I think I've seen the first three. It's been a while. But having rewatched the first episode, I'm really keen to go back and carry on and get reacquainted with Nucky and the rest of the characters. One of the things I love about Boardwalk Empire is, like you say, it's got fact and fiction mixed and it's mostly fiction, I think it's fair to say. But it does tell really well the semi-true story of how Prohibition was seen as this great way to improve the quality of life in America and to remove drunks and corruption and everything and all it did was feed the rise of the modern gangster and I think they do a really good job of showing that. What I love about that pilot show, the first episode, is I love the opening scene. Nucky's giving a really self-deprecating speech to the Temperance League about how the demon drink has ruined his father's life and then he walks out swigging on his hip flask and quipping First rule of politics, kiddo never let the truth get in the way of a good story. I thought that was just a brilliant way to introduce you to him as this duplicitous person in power. And then the other bit that I really liked is the countdown. Prohibition is just about to start and they do a final 10 seconds countdown and then celebrate like it's New Year's Eve as the clock ticks over to the Prohibition era. Everybody celebrating as if that's the best thing that could happen for them because they're going to make so much more money now that booze is illegal than they ever could being legit. So I'm a massive fan of Boardwalk Empire. I'm definitely going to get reacquainted again and I'm really pleased you chose that one. 
What did you think, Simon? Yeah, I've never seen it before, so I'm quite fascinated. I've read a lot about the Prohibition period and that Al Capone and the rise of the gangster in America and the Prohibition being such an incredible thing for them to try and do. Obviously, ultimately doomed to fail, but it was a brave effort at the time. And I'm like you, Gordon, I've really enjoyed the fact that he was doing that speech. I've never seen this guy before, never seen his character, just very rousing speech, all the women are loving it. Then, as I say, as soon as he walked out, then he gets a hip flask out, and they hold on. <laughs> It was an interesting start because it starts with the guys and the truck on the side of the road and they steal the liquor off those other guys. And then the story goes right full circle to that point again. So at the end, you know why that's happened and what it's about. The setting was very authentic. It really did portray that era of America at that time. Obviously, they did have a big budget for that first one to really lavish on it. The costumes, the, the cars, the period was just very, very meticulous in its portrayal. So definitely, it's really got my interest up. And I'm going to watch the whole way through. So I'm not going to look at any synopsis. I'm going to just go through the series and spend the uh, long winter evenings watching a bit of Boardwalk Empire and I think being completely new to it I think you're in for a treat particularly as Graham's already called out the development of Michael Shannon's character who for me exactly like you Graham is the standout character in certainly the series that I've seen he's absolutely brilliant in that and since watching that and seeing other films with him in since Boardwalk Empire has become one of my favourite actors so yeah I think you're in for a treat Simon Matt what did you think? Well once again it falls to me to give a differing opinion I'm not a fan of gangster mobster genre films and while this started off good the scenes you mentioned particularly the speech at the beginning by Steve Buscemi was really good his character's good and I'm a really big fan of him as an actor I like virtually everything he's been in but by the end of the first episode I was starting to lose interest already and the reason I think I don't like these kind of things is because basically the majority of characters aren't very likeable I alluded to it earlier when I was talking about Brighton Rock again there's not really anyone to get behind because they're all just backstabbing each other and for some reason I just don't like films like that or in this case a TV show. The only film I like from this genre is The Untouchables and that's really because it's about the people trying to stop the gangsters rather than the gangsters themselves. So I know it's incredibly highly rated. It's obviously going to be well made. It's an HBO production so it's going to be top quality but based on that pilot I'm not going to watch any further episodes of it. There's certainly no sympathetic characters in it really. I can't think of any of the major characters that would endear any sympathy at any point whatsoever throughout the whole series so I think the only one maybe is Kelly MacDonald's character is the beaten wife who later on in the story gets a reasonably big part as her relationship with Nucky develops. The problem I had with her was her accent wasn't very good given that she's Scottish. Why not just make her <laughs> Scottish, you know? It's not like most American viewers would be able to tell the difference between those accents yeah, anyway. Yeah, you could probably make her Australian and they wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, not a fan unfortunately, although I'm sure I could probably get into it if I watched a few more episodes, but there's so much other stuff I'd prefer to watch at this point. Okay, so because just watching one episode isn't enough for us to give a proper star rating for these kind of things, I think what we should do is just say whether we will continue watching or stop. And I think it's quite clear from our discussion, but I'm definitely a continue. Graham, you've seen it all anyway, but... I'd watch it again, definitely. Simon? Continue. Matthew? Not continue. Okay, so that's pretty conclusive. Three to one that this is a TV show that's worth sticking with. Next up, then, we have Playtime, which is another new segment where we play a video game that often will be based on movies that are related to the theme, but not necessarily, depending on what the theme is. And this time, Matt, it was your choice. And I've chosen the video game Home Alone 2, and it was chosen because I wanted to choose for this first episode in our new format a game based on a film that fitted our theme. And this was the only game based on a film set in a hotel that I could find. Home Alone 2, obviously based on the 90s, 
1992 film was developed by Imagineer and released by THQ in 1992 for the three active Nintendo consoles of the time which was the NES, the SNES and the Game Boy and a Sega Genesis version was developed and published by Sega a year later in the USA only and a PC version was produced as well the same year and that was developed independently from the console games. The Genesis version is quite different to the Nintendo one. The Nintendo ones are all pretty similar. All the versions of the game are 2D scrolling platformers where Kevin McAllister, who was played by Macaulay Culkin of course, must negotiate a variety of levels based on real world locations, mostly from the film presumably, avoiding hazardous objects and villains out to catch him, including the burglars Harry and Marv who obviously reprised their appearance from the first film. The Nintendo versions all start in the Plaza Hotel, which was a setting for much of the film, and at the time the game and the film was made, that hotel was owned by soon to be President Donald Trump, and the Genesis version starts in the airport. So I didn't play all the versions, and I should mention at this point that I've never actually watched Home Alone 2, because the first one wasn't one of my favourite films particularly, so I thought the second one was a bit unnecessary. I started off with the SNES version, and that's got reasonable graphics, but the backgrounds are pretty bland. It does have some digitised scenes from the movie, but they're not very well digitised to be honest, and the music was pretty dire for this era of gaming, I thought. The controls are really twitchy, and it's hard not to get damaged by the variety of dangerous objects, and it's also relentless with the objects there's no point at which you can stop and have a breather there's always something running at your a suitcase rolling towards you or whatever and it really sets its stall out at the beginning by having the hotel concierge catch you almost as soon as the level begins unless you start running so you materialize in the hotel and this guy's chasing you straight away and before you can move he's caught you and you've lost a life and that's just an absolute no-no as far as game design is concerned the game is very unforgiving also throwing lots of dangerous enemies and situations at you right from the start most human enemies cause you to lose a life life on contact. There's no continues either which means progress is frustrating. You get three lives I think and once they're gone then you're back to the start and playing it again from the start. I've got something else to say about it but I'm just going to move on to what I thought of the NES version which was much like the SNES version but more colourful but even harder to play so I didn't last very long in that but what I did notice when I played that is that you can actually go into the stores on the ground floor of the hotel so after playing that I went back and played the SNES version again and you could do that in the SNES version. It wasn't very obvious in the SNES version. The doors just looked like they part of the background but when you go in there there's actually some useful weapons that are more powerful that can actually help you progress further into the game so when I went back to the SNES version I got a lot further and got about four floors up the hotel which I don't suppose is very far into the game but I'd pretty much had enough by then. Moving on to the Mega Drive or Genesis version I thought the graphics were a bit less well defined than the SNES version but the animation was better and the music's also miles better than the SNES version. The gameplay is a lot more balanced and easier with a more substantial health bar and I found there was better interaction with the objects in the game for example you could move boxes to allow access to higher up areas so the game design was a little bit cleverer but I got through to the second part of the airport level and got stuck on this annoying luggage conveyor system which every so often you'd throw you down a hole and you'd rematerialize back at the beginning of the level and have to do it again so it was really frustrating again so I gave up with about 45,000 and I still had four lives left at that point so yeah not a great game is my summary of it any thoughts from anyone else about it? When I got on Mega Drive in the early 90s I got it specifically so I wouldn't have to play games like this anymore and playing Home Alone 2 especially on the Mega Drive made me realise that it was probably a good thing at the time that I was playing games like Desert Strike and Flashback and the wealth of great shoot'em ups and arcade conversions that you got on the Mega Drive because games like Home Alone 2 I would have just hated it's just a platformer really all forms of it that plague the Nintendo 
consoles and the Mega Drive as well to a certain extent and like you Matt I just got incredibly frustrated playing it. However the two versions, I mean I always thought the Mega Drive and the SNES if you combine the best elements of the two consoles you'd have a, a really great console because undoubtedly the graphics are a lot more colourful on the SNES version but like you say the music leaves a lot to be desired on the Mega Drive the animation's miles better and the music's better as well but it has a kind of washed out look to it as well but the gameplay style is just not really to my liking at all and although the Mega Drive game can be made a little bit easier like you say because you can take a breather and you can manipulate some objects around and I got hold of a slingshot and some ammo for that and that made the game a lot easier and even fun in parts as well but I just find I played enough sort of games like this on my Spectrum a few years earlier and I just found it all a bit tiresome over the two versions I'm not sure which would edge it but not a fan of Brave just to go back to one point you made there platformers on the 16-bit consoles were usually a bit more advanced but there's a lot of one-hit kills and getting thrown back to the beginning of a level each time you die which was starting to fade out by the time 16-bit consoles came around but this is a really poor 8-bit style game on a 16-bit platform I also played the SNES and Mega Drive versions and whilst the game looks perfectly fine I think I'd probably say I prefer the graphics on the Mega Drive I definitely prefer the theming the airport looks quite nice but I just found no fun in the game at all there's no level design there it's just all these things coming towards you and you've got to just get past them somehow which at certain points felt almost impossible although on the Mega Drive at least you can jump on the back of chairs and on top of snack machines and things like that there's certainly more places you can get above the enemies but on both games I got to a certain point where I just kept repeatedly dying and couldn't get off the first level certainly on the SNES one I could easily get to the elevator on my first life and then just couldn't get past that point and didn't know what I was doing wrong and there was nothing to help me with that and maybe there was in the manual if I wasn't playing it emulated but I just found it absolutely dreadful so I probably lasted 10 minutes on the SNES version and 20 minutes on the Mega Drive and that half an hour is something I'm going to be billing you for Matt <laughs> well I have to put the blame back on you for picking the theme of hotels <laughs> okay fair enough the end of that SNES first level you had to press the X button uh and push up where the button was flashing but it took me about 20 goes to work that out you have to do it five times and then finally the elevator finally comes down it was ludicrous <laughs> Simon what were your thoughts on that? I only played the Mega Drive version I had a Mega Drive at the time and Home Alone 2 was not the sort of game I'd have rushed out and buy at the time but I didn't mind the graphics I liked the airport level on that and I gave it quite a bit of a go for about 45 minutes I kept getting to the elevator but I just couldn't bloody get into the elevator you've got the bad guy comes out you think he's one of the main protagonists in the film isn't it? the guy in the trench coat I don't know but he comes out and he grabs hold of him and shake him off and he falls over and then eventually he shakes you too much and you just die and you have to start at the other end of the level again and I kept thinking is the elevator just going to open if you have to avoid him for such an amount of time and then it'll open the doors you can run in or I never worked out how to get past that so unfortunately again I got stuck there I really like the parallax scrolling of the clouds out the window and the odd aircraft flying off in the distance I thought that would look quite good you know I know it sounds absolutely nuts but I am probably going to try it again just to get through that elevator and go further into the game on the Mega Drive version just annoyed me not getting in that elevator so I might have to give it another go before I dismiss it to absolute pap I'd like to at least try and get into the hotel which is the whole point of the airport it wasn't the theme it's the hotel wasn't it never mind getting into the hotel it needs to get in room 101 one, that's what it needs. <laughs> that's in the hotel, isn't it? <laughs> did anyone else get past the elevator on the Mega Drive version? Though? I did once. Because I got through that on my first go. I just basically shot the guy that came out of the elevator. He grabbed me and I ran off and then I shot him a couple of times and then just went in the elevator. It didn't seem to cause me any problem. But the level after that is diabolical. 
But I was down there jumping over him, hitting him, jumping over him, hitting him, and he kept falling over. The elevator never opened. Oh, there was a button to press, I think. Yeah. I think you had to stand underneath it and push up. Oh, or something. right. Okay. I don't know. Oh, well. Okay, well, let's give some scores for Home Alone 2. I think the only version we've all played is the Mega Drive one, so let's score the Mega Drive version. Matt, as it was your choice, what are you giving Home Alone 2? It's going to be 2 out of 5. Okay, Graham. 1.5. I'm going to give it 1.5 as well, only because I liked the airport graphics. And Simon? I'll give it 2 as well. Again, I like the graphics, and I'd like to actually try and go a bit further into the game. Okay, so that gives Home Alone 2 a score of 1.75. I don't think it'll take much for next month's game to beat that score. Top of the leaderboard. Bottom of the leaderboard. <laughs> okay, to close out our hotel theme, it's time for the team to pick their most favouritest temporary abodes from movies and TV. So for this show's three of the best, I'm asking you for your top three screen hotels. We'll start with Graham. I've cheated a little bit because technically I have chosen just one temporary abode, as you put it, which is the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles. This is a very famous hotel that has starred in countless movies. So I have chosen three movies which I think is particularly memorable for two from the 80s and one from the 90s. The first one, the Biltmore Hotel doubled as the Beverly Palms Hotel in Beverly Hills Cop. And this was the hotel where Axel Foley made his famous speech about how the hotel was racist. I won't repeat it here because it carries a couple of naughty words, but if you've seen <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop, you'll know this scene. So that's the first one. That takes place in the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel. The second example is possibly even more famous. It's from the 1984 film Ghostbusters, and here the Biltmore is doubling as the Sedgwick Hotel, which of course is the hotel where the Ghostbusters are called to capture the Slimer. Now I'm not too sure if many of the scenes, such as in the corridors, are filmed at the Biltmore Hotel, but the famous scene where they capture the Slimer in the ballroom certainly is from the Biltmore Hotel and that's obviously a very famous scene from a very famous movie as well and the final one is actually the Biltmore plays itself in Independence Day from 1996 and the first lady is attending a function at the hotel so there you go Biltmore Hotel do you think anyone actually got to stay there when they were filming Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop in the same hotel <laughs> I don't know but it would have been fun wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah okay thanks for that let's hear yours then Matt. Okay I've got three different hotels but one of mine's from a TV show rather than a movie. In third place I've gone for Hotel Transylvania from the film Hotel Transylvania run by Dracula a hotel where the monsters go to get away from those annoying humans so not the ideal place for me to visit but it turns out most monsters are quite friendly and know how to party. And in second place I've gone for The Great Northern from Twin Peaks a clean reasonably priced hotel that serves great breakfast and a damn fine coffee if you like that kind of thing although there is a risk of being shot kept awake by raucous Icelandics or visited by a giant and in first place I've gone for an abode that features in two different films The Inn of the Prancing Pony from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit a warm welcoming inn with Hobbit friendly rooms and it seems to be a pretty good place to meet a wizard thank you very much my top three in third place I've gone for the guest house Paradiso the worst guest house in Britain it's not in any of the guidebooks there's nobody around for miles an oasis of calm even the peasants in the village deny its existence but for me anywhere run by Richard Richard and Edward Elizabeth Hitler is fine though of course as this was only a semi-official Bond movie the character names were strangely altered to Richard Twat pronounced Thwaite apparently and Eddie Ndingombaba it's a long time since I've seen the film so I'm not sure if they actually explained that name 
second place, I've gone for a film that hasn't actually been released yet. Back in December of 2012, I saw a Kickstarter campaign for a movie called The Fitzroy. They were looking for £60,000 to support the filming and production of the film. The campaign actually raised 72000 and the film itself is an independent black comedy set in a post-apocalyptic 1950s Margate. The world's covered in the poisonous gas, and the Fitzroy Hotel, which is actually a beach submarine, is the last place for a traditional holiday. And basically, you can't breathe outside, so you go to this submarine for your holidays. And it's the tale of life for the characters who run this hotel and the guests that turn up in this submarine hotel. It's 50s style, but it looks like it's quite a slapstick film, and it's not yet been finished. Only a couple of weeks ago, I received an email showing me the official movie poster, and they're hoping that it will get released early next year. But in first place, I've cheated a little bit myself, and I've gone for a property that is a hotel in real life but on the big screen it actually masqueraded as the Alaskan mountain retreat of software billionaire Nathan Bateman in the fantastic AI thriller Ex Machina. It's one of the most stunning secluded locations that I've ever seen and a breathtakingly stylish location for one of my favourite films of recent years and when I win the lottery it will be the first stop on my world tour and if anybody's interested it's called the Jevet Landscape Hotel and it's in northwest Norway. So that just leaves you then Simon. Right, a third of my list is going to probably make you all balk and go, what the hell are you doing? Is the hotel that appeared in the 24th Carry On film in the resort of Els Bells. <laughs> and I like Carry On. It's just all my kind of crazy, disgraceful humour. But what I love about it is just when they turn up, it's half built. Peter Buckworth is running around as a manager and does all the different roles in it. Hattie Jakes is his wife in the kitchen. It's just absolutely hilarious with that. And everything goes wrong. The sand comes out the taps and they're still all trying to get off each other and just the typical Carry On stuff. And eventually it sinks into the ground the whole thing collapses and they still have a party around it the second one i've chosen it's not a hotel it's a sort of guest house stroke dos house really and it's got a spin-off film and it's also a tv series and it's rigsby's house in rising damp what i love about it is it just reeks of neglect and the sets are just amazing you really feel that it's just a dank horrible place to live with things not right and rigsby keeping an eye on everything just so decrepit but he thinks it's the bee's knees but obviously the top one of my list again it's a tv series and it just wouldn't be right to have a podcast about hotels and not have the absolute seminal 40 towers i grew up with this stuff never forget you watch these things my parents watched it and i watched it with them and i know it's a bit nuts maybe i didn't understand all the humor at the time but it's just a lot of slapstick comedy so you'd never get bored of it john cleese just makes it as basil 40 but all the cast are really good and it just stands out as for me as for a hotel in tv it's one of the best excellent i think we came up with 12 pretty great hotels well actually we came up with 10 pretty great hotels from at least 12 different <laughs> tv or films and that brings a close to our hotel theme next up we have the classic scene which is our regular slot where one of the team picks a scene that is particularly memorable and this time we go to simon thanks gordon i chose the classic scene which is from the 1985 science fiction adventure comedy film which everyone will know back to the future one of my favorite films and this scene appears in different forms in all three films it's a bit where marty and george are talking in the cafe and then biff comes in causes trouble marty stands up for his future dad and then then they end up running out of the cafe and to get away from Biff grabs a skateboard with handles made out of a box. He sort of breaks it off and then uses it as a skateboard to escape the gang. I've always loved that scene. I think it's quite a key scene of the film and as I said, the same scene is recurring occurrence in other Back to the Future films. Obviously they have a similar scene in two with the modern day courthouse and the hoverboards and also when he's getting dragged around in the mud in Back to the Future 3. Whoa, whoa, kid, kid, 
with you, all right? We've just got one more section left of the first episode of our new season and that's the big question it's a new feature where the team take a look at a hot topic from the movie press and try to settle the debate once and for all through enlightened debate democratic rhetoric and reasoned arguments or failing that name calling and tantrums remakes and reboots are all the rage at the moment this year we've been treated to new versions of the magnificent seven and ghostbusters and it's recently been announced that remakes of popular 80s hits rambo and the american werewolf in london are in the works. Add to this the likes of Commando, War Games and Police Academy that have all recently had the rights snapped up and you can see a trend that's unlikely to change anytime soon. Introducing these beloved franchises to a whole new audience must be a tantalising proposition for the big studios but does it show that Hollywood is running out of ideas in its quest to find the safest option to throw its big budgets at? So the big question for this show is, is Hollywood running on empty? And we'll go to you first Matt. I think Hollywood has been short of original ideas for at least a decade. There's a lot of remakes and reboots have been taking place over the last 10 years or so. Even some films that are highly regarded you could consider are remakes of sorts, such as Star Wars Episode 7. I don't think they're all a bad thing. Not all the remakes or reboots that I've seen have been bad. For example, The Thing, which was more of a prequel than a remake anyway, but it was marketed as a remake. I enjoyed that as a fan of the original. Also, Rob Zombie's Halloween added new depth to the character of Michael Myers giving you a bit more of his backstory so I thought that was quite good and X-Men First Class as an example of a reboot was really good that's probably the one I've enjoyed most of the X-Men with the younger versions of characters like Professor Xavier and Magneto recently I do think also there's been a resurgence in new ideas a little bit in Hollywood certainly five years ago I wasn't watching many new films at all because they were all just rehashes of the same thing and mostly not very good ones it does seem more recently that there's there's been a few more original offerings from Hollywood that have been enjoyable and also 
so obviously the ongoing adaptations of books and comics and so forth so is it running on empty not quite but it's definitely below half full okay very good simon what are your thoughts obviously i've seen a few remakes over the last five ten years i can see the point of making them to bring classic films in the old days to a modern audience but a lot of the time i think they detract from the original and i just don't think they work so much you've got to try and detach yourself from the original and watch them as a film and their own right but obviously it's going to be very difficult when it's a remake of a classic film and i think if you detach yourself off and just look at it as a film as i write it will fall on its own merits but i've not seen any remake that has come across as better than the original but i'm sure there maybe are some out there that do improve on the films but I just think it's a part of filmmaking that's always going to be there. I think reboots are going to keep happening. And I think that is because they may be running out of ideas, but there's also this back catalogue of good films. And I think it's a standard thing that happens in all eras. You've got the 30s films, I'm sure in the 50s, 60s, some of these films were remade. There's loads of films that are remakes all through every era. There's a way of taking a film from the past and update it. So it's not a new thing, but it just seems to be every other film at the moment seems to be coming out. It seems to be a reboot of something from the past. Like the recent Ghostbusters film, that was totally and utterly didn't need to be remade. There's no need for that at all. It is showing a lack of ambition and a lack of ideas so I'm hoping it's something that might be reeled in a little bit but I can't see it in the near future. Okay, thank you. Some interesting points there about it being cyclical and it's certainly not being a new phenomenon. Graham, what do you think? Yeah, I think Simon's right there. Hollywood has always regurgitated old ideas. I found it quite funny that Matt mentioned The Thing when of course The Thing from 1982 is a remake as well of a 50s film and obviously earlier I mentioned in What Have We Been Watching that the two films were either a remake or a reboot and I think those two films kind of exemplify the problems you can have one of them was a pretty decent reimagining changed the format and the story somewhat and does a decent job of it while the other one was a bit of a waste of space really and I think that's how a lot of remakes and reboots fall so they shouldn't necessarily be completely disregarded there can be some decent examples but on the other hand the majority of them I fear are completely utterly pointless in the case of films like Robocop they just kind of smooth out all the edges of the original films and take out the best bits of them. I hear they're thinking of remaking Starship Troopers, which would probably do the same sort of thing again. And even American Werewolf in London, which is quite incredible to really consider that anyone would remake that. But like Simon said, it is something that's gone on for a long time. The reason obviously is is that you have a recognisable name, which is kind of the hook you get to get people in through the theatre doors. And that obviously generates more money. Whether Hollywood is actually running out of ideas or not, I'm not too sure, because as Matt said, I think there is a lot of new content still coming out. So to be honest, if you're not really a big fan of remakes, then just avoid them. There usually is plenty of other original movies elsewhere that you can watch. Of course, whether they're any good or not is another matter. Is it running on empty? I'm not sure, but it certainly needs to be keeping an eye out for the next services. Well, I can take on board some of what all of you have said. I think I can see some reasons for reboot that are more than just money grabbing. There are advancements in filmmaking, not just in special effects, but also in the quality of script writing, of being able to tell a dramatic tale, has moved on a hell of a lot in the last 30 years. So I can understand films from the 80s being ripe for remakes now. Something like Total Recall, I'd actually probably hold that up as a good example of how you can take something that was... I'd say Total Recall is a cult classic in that technically it's not marvellous, but it's a lot of fun. 
but with modern filmmaking techniques it was turned into a more dramatic film and less of this schlocky silly sci-fi film so I can see reasons for making these films but having said that I've said it before and it bears saying again that Hollywood is far too concerned with playing safe and with the size of modern movie budgets I can kind of understand that but what this means and what I bang on about probably every other episode is that the only real place to go for innovation is the indie scene and apart from the odd blockbuster like whenever a new Star Wars film comes out that's where I get most of my enjoyment from my movie viewing it's the lower budget Canadian British and non-Hollywood American films they're the ones that I get the most enjoyment out of so for me the question is is Hollywood running on empty if I take Hollywood as big budget studio films yes Hollywood is absolutely running on empty so I'm going to ask that question again to all of us and you can't sit on the fence the question is is Hollywood running on empty Simon probably not Matthew no and I'm a yes and Graham no okay so there you go it's not unanimous but it's quite clear cut Hollywood's not running on empty but we should probably qualify that by saying that most of us don't watch as much independent cinema as you do yeah quite true quite true so that brings to a close the first show of our new format the final thing we've got left is to talk about the next show and Graham it's your turn to take the lead so what have you got for us for next time well we have a choice I'm going to give you a question you have to decide which of the two subjects you're going to go for the question is do you want a stand-up fight or is this just going to be another bug hunt simon bug hunt gordon stand up fight it's on me again then is it Uh, i'm going to go for bug hunt bug hunt okay as you might suspect this does have something to do with bugs but maybe not in the way that you thought the bug hunt choice for film club is going to be the nuclear effect film them which was about mutated ants this film was one of the many 50s sci-fi films that tapped into America's fear of nuclear Armageddon. And that is going to be the theme of the next episode. Nuclear Armageddon, radiation, anything to do with nuclear bombs, the wars that ensue or post-apocalyptic caused by nuclear Armageddon. It doesn't have to involve bugs. The key was that the film I've chosen for Film Club is about nuclear, obviously, because atomic testing causes these ants to grow to a huge size and terrorise all this population. But that is just an excuse to have the general atomic threat as the theme. Plenty of scope there, boys. That theme sounds quite exciting, Graham, and I'll certainly look forward to the film choice. Some of the other choices for the TV show, video game, etc., will be announced on our social media over the next few weeks, so look out for that on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Movie Muse UK. Okay, so now it's time to pay the minibar bill and check out of Hotel Movie Muse. We hope you've enjoyed your stay and that you come back soon for another heavy dose of movies and musings from the Movie Muse team.